Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn. Cole Hahn's shoes, bags, and outerwear go with you while you work your way to extraordinary. More at colehahn.com. In this episode, we bring you two events from the 2020 Portland Book Festival that both wrestle with the question of how we look after each other when mental, physical health have been compromised. What do we owe each other, and when do we walk away? In this first segment of our show, we feature Robert Kolker, who joined us to talk about his new work of nonfiction, Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family. The book is the heart-rending story of a mid-century American family, the Galvins, with 12 children, six of whom were diagnosed with schizophrenia. It is a story of immense trauma and also genuine hope. I can't imagine a better person for Coker to be in conversation with than journalist Eli Saslow. Saslow is a Washington Post staff writer whose own writing often confronts the complicated humanity at the intersection of family and trauma. Here's Saslow. Thank you so much. Uh, and Bob, it's a pleasure to, to be here talking with you and, and getting to talk about this book, uh, which I loved and I learned a lot from, um, not only in terms of science and, and schizophrenia, but also in terms of um, empathy and reporting and, and narrative structure too. So I, I very much appreciate the work. Um, I guess, first of all, I, I've heard that you first learned of this family um, through a, a mutual friend, a former editor of yours who had uh, gone to school with one of the Galvins, um, you know, a family with 12 kids, six of whom uh, had, had schizophrenia. Uh, and, and I wonder, you know, if that moment, just hearing about it immediately for you was the light bulb went off that this could be something, something big, um, or, or if really it was once the reporting began, uh, or at what point during the reporting that you realized this could be a really spectacular narrative book. I'm smiling as I listen to your question because I actually was quite skeptical at the very beginning. Um, but but before I answer, I just want to want to thank you, Eli, for taking part in this. I really am a great fan of your work. I'm really honored that you agreed to be a part of this event, and I'm really grateful to the Portland Book Festival for for featuring Hidden Valley Road here. Um, the the story of this book for me begins in the spring of 2016 when two sisters, uh, Margaret Galvin Johnson and Lindsay Galvin Rauch, who are both now in their 50s, were connected with me on the phone. We had a mutual friend who was an old editor of mine, uh, John Gluck. Uh, we worked together years ago at New York Magazine, and he knew something about uh, the sort of stuff I specialize in, which is a you know real narrative journalism that tries to report intimately and sensitively about people's lives preferably not uh, public officials or newsmakers, but ordinary people who are going through something really extraordinary. And so he thought I might be a good fit for this. But when they told me about their family, about how they had 10 older brothers and six of them had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, I, I was shocked. And the more I learned about them, the more I couldn't believe the story. There was a lot of tragedy in this story. It involved, includes um, a murder-suicide and some uh, sexual abuse and clergy abuse. Uh, any number of terrible things. But the, the thing about it is I, I was probably the most depressed person on the call because it, it was the sisters who kind of pulled me up and, and inspired me because they, they, they saw some hope in their family story. In particular, they saw how there might be medical significance to their family story. They knew that um, uh, researchers had been uh, studying their DNA for decades and they knew that they had come back with some answers but they would like to find out more about what became of some of that participation and um, then they they were looking for an impartial journalist to tell the whole story of the family to interview everybody and put it all together and that's when I started to feel a little intimidated because 
there are medical privacy laws in this country, and I was sure that all it would take would be one family member to not be so enthusiastic about this, and the whole thing would sort of go away. But I think what I realized in retrospect is that my my worry about this, what that meant was that I knew that I was on the track of something that was just unprecedented. A, a large family like this experiencing acute mental illness this way and then being willing to open up about it, to move past the stigma and and to actually talk about what they went through, that potentially could be a very inspiring story. And so I worked for months talking with everyone in the family to make sure that they were comfortable and all right with it. I talked to medical researchers to learn about the DNA and the science side of it. And then I, then I got going. Wow. One of the things that I think is remarkable about sort of the intimacy of the reporting in this book is it becomes clear pretty quickly that you, um, you know, you spent time not just obviously with the women, but with everybody in the family, uh, you had incredible access, also incredible access to these medical records. Um, you know, and also I'm sure uh, at various points in the reporting, you knew more about how many members of the family felt about various things than other people in the family. You were sort of in between uh, the fissures and all of these very sensitive family relationships um, where there was a lot of real trauma. And, and I wonder sort of for you, ethically in the reporting of that um, and just in the relationship building in this family, how you kind of balance that and how you figured out how to sort of maintain some amount of journalistic distance um, while also building these remarkably close, trusting, reported relationships. That's a great question, Eli, and it speaks to your experience writing about families who have been through tragedy in your work in, with The Post. A at the beginning, I wondered what, what this book was about. Is it about two sisters who came together and survived a family trauma? Is it a, was it a science book about schizophrenia, which was like a case study kind of book? Or um, was it uh, about you know a deep dive into mental illness and the history of mental illness, an academic book? And I finally saw given just how willing the family was was to talk to me about their experiences, that I could try to do it all, that this could be an, an epic. And the book really, for those who haven't leafed through it, it, it's it's sort of shaped as a family saga and medical mystery. So hopefully it reads like a novel, like you're reading East of Eden or something where part one is one generation and part two is the next generation. And then woven in there when you need to know about it is the scientific piece of the story. But as you said, uh, that meant getting everybody's side of the story and stitching it all together. And that uh, inevitably, since we're talking about 12 children spanning over 20 years, that means some people's memories don't overlap even at all with other people's memories of what it was like to be in the family. And so, yes, there did come a time where I knew more than, than everybody else did individually. And I remember John Galvin saying to me after the book came out last spring that there was news in the book to him, you know, stuff he hadn't known because he had left home so much sooner than other people had and had uh, obviously been in touch, but, but there was a thing or two in there that he didn't realize was going on at home at the time. The key for me was to be an honest broker, to be a grown up, you know, to not be stepping into a dramatic situation, interested in amping up the drama, but to be sort of a cool head who was willing to, to sort of impartially, but, but sensitively tell this story as best as I could. Uh, what I what I was really lucky about was that so many of the more difficult things that happened to this family happened many, many decades ago. So I wasn't walking into the middle of a crisis the way that I had with Lost Girls. And I think that you probably have done with some of your work. So everybody was talking in retrospect and that made, that kind of kept the temperature cool as I was reporting. Yeah. I, I mean, as, as ready as, as sort of um, Margaret and Lindsay, I guess, in particular were to sort of tell this story and... Um, you know, even the urgency that they had to sort of have it matter and mean something. I, I wonder if there were parts of the reporting or, or things that you unearthed in those medical records, um, you know, or, or even things that you brought back to them from conversations with other members of the family that um, were really difficult for them and, and sort of how, uh, how their experience sort of of you reporting this book maybe evolved as the months and the years went on. I got a real taste of that very early on when it became very clear that the two sisters weren't in lockstep on every issue in the family. Uh, I really had kind of, the book had taken shape in my mind as a sort of two sisters against the world sort of story. And then when I, I took a reporting trip to Colorado, not my first one, but my first one where I was talking to each sister individually, I started to see the places where they didn't overlap and how they had 
very similar traumas, but had processed them differently and also had issues with one another that they needed one one another for many years, but then clashed for many other years. And um, I went back to my friend who uh, who knew them well, and I said, "You didn't tell me about this." And he he said <laughs> something like, "Oh yeah, 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 there's a, yeah, they're kind of like that." And I was like, "Oh okay." And I I I had maybe a day or so of worrying about it, and then I realized that this is this is real. I mean, this is how families work. I have a brother and a sister, and our our memories of our family don't overlap completely. We each have processed our family issues differently from one another. Even if you never have acute mental illness in your family, you could read Hidden Valley Road and relate to the idea of two sisters processing their memories differently and clashing sometimes. And I, I as I continued reporting and writing, I thought um, that readers could even read the book and wonder, well, which one would I be more like? How would I have reacted to this same set of circumstances? Would I be more like one or more like another? And one reader said to me that they felt like they were like one, one day of the week and another, another day of the week. They just went back and forth. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think one thing that made the two of them um, so real in the book is 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 that exact relatability, where you felt you felt the tension in some of those places, which I think really helps. Um, you know, I think to me the thing that was even more amazing, and I'm I'm sure difficult uh, in terms of the reporting, was that to have six um, people in the book, six characters in the story, uh, who who had been suffering with schizophrenia. You know, some of whom were were no longer alive. Um, others of whom, obviously, were not going to be reliable narrators of their own experience. Um, but still, you managed to have, I think, the book live inside that that disease, and also, um, you know, made it clear to me for the first time that it's it's a very diverse disease, right? It's not one person's experience of schizophrenia is not the same as everyone else's. Um, and, and I wonder, sort of, how you got there to that point. If if you'd had any experience with it in your own family, in your own life, if it was just talking to the family, if it was watching videos, talking to doctors, um, what made you feel like you had it to the point where you could write from within um, a really troubled mind in some ways and give us a sense of that experience? I certainly had a lot of misconceptions about acute mental illness and about schizophrenia specifically going into this. Um, but but I'll back up a step by saying that I've, I've written you know narrative nonfiction about people going through difficulties and I've written about very complex subjects that take a lot of research over many years. And so the book felt like a really good mix of old and new to me, of familiar and unfamiliar. I'd be able to write about a family the way that I knew that I could, and then I would have to do a deep dive into a subject that I was really starting from scratch at, which is a joyful thing for a journalist to be able to do, but also very, very terrifying because you want to make sure you get it right and and really and really get it right. Don't just sort of skim the surface. And so I had these notions that were wrong. I thought that in our era, the modern era, mental illness was a brain chemical condition where you would search for the right pill and through a combination of trial and error and therapy as well perhaps you could regulate your mental illness. And that might be uh, perhaps more true for anxiety or depression or bipolar disorder or other varieties of mental illness. But it's, for schizophrenia, they're using the same drugs by and large that, that have been used for decades, for 50 years. And so it, it really they really aren't doing that kind of, you know, quote unquote, miracle work that, that you would expect them to do. And then I, I was very concerned from the start that I didn't I didn't want this to be a monster movie. I didn't want to write a book where where I would say, and then that brother went crazy, and then the next brother went crazy, and then that's the last you hear from them. I wanted to make sure that they emerged as people. And and when I first met them personally, the three surviving mentally ill brothers, you know, within seconds of meeting each of them, I realized that that wasn't going to be a problem. That they were very much people. That again, that was another probably another mistaken or you know wrong notion that I had about about this. It's not like I was visiting them in maximum security settings. Nobody was wearing a straight jacket. They all had personalities. They were infirm and and impaired by years of medication and by years of mental illness, but they were themselves. And and so I saw firsthand what you said in your question, which is that this isn't a cookie cutter condition. It's it's different for everyone, which makes it very hard to treat. And very hard for our healthcare system to get its hands around, but it, sure. it also makes it clear that the people are people. Yep. 
what were those meetings like with those three? I mean, were, were those uh, three separate times, three very separate situations? And, and what was their, you know, do you feel like they had much of a sense, you know, like their sisters did, about um, the importance of people understanding this and, and also paying attention? All three of them brightened up in each in their own way when they heard that there was a book on the way about the family. And and so then when I would see them again, say so they'd say, you know, this is Bob, he's writing the book. And they'd say, oh, yes, of course. How are you? How are you doing? You know, Donald is the oldest member of the family, the oldest brother. He was 72 or so when I met him. And he, um, you know, he lives in a very nice assisted living facility and he has free reign of the place and they take him out for dinner. And he, it is not a facility for for one particular medical condition. So he's sort of in the mix. He's a very quiet, kind of tranquil presence now, very different from how he used to be. Um, but also delusional. Like he'll talk about how he is descended from an octopus and how his, you know, when his mother died, you know, she became uh, a fish, you know, it all gets sort of mixed in there. But then he speaks with encyclopedic knowledge about everyone else in his family and how they're all related to one another, including nieces, nephews, great nieces, great nephews. So it's, it's quite something to see him at work. And wow. he's very like cordial, and and right. uh, you know Peter's more infirm, but also very affectionate. Plays the recorder, performs for everyone, shows everyone his photo albums of the family. Um, really wants everyone to know how special his family is. And Matthew's a little grouchier, with lots of complaints about justifiable complaints about you know aches and pains and and what he's going through in his life. Um, but at the same time is deeply, deeply grateful whenever anyone shows him the slightest bit of kindness. So it's really something to see him uh, interact with his sisters that way. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the, the book also sort of becomes, you know, the the, the evolving story of um, not just the science in terms of, of this particular disease, but also I feel like how we how we as a country have treated acute mental illness. And, and um, Mimi, obviously, the mother, uh, I feel like suffered... Um, a great deal in terms of just the the stigma and sometimes the um, the really drastic misunderstanding of of where this illness came from, and particularly this idea that it was it was because of mothers who who were not um, mothering effectively. And and I guess I wonder, you know, in the time that you spent with her, um, it, it, how she felt about sort of our arc as a country in terms of understanding this, and and um, maybe also where you feel about where we are now in terms of othering and, and stigmatizing mental illness. I think we, we other this illness both up and down. We think about them sometimes as as monsters, and then we think about them as perhaps tortured geniuses or mystics who 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 see things that the rest of society doesn't see. And there might be isolated instances where 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 one of those stereotypes might seem to fit the bill. But certainly, for the vast majority of people with schizophrenia, they are people who have a mental condition that may actually not be a uniform mental condition. May actually be uh, several different brain conditions that we all have lumped into schizophrenia. The the war of ideas about this illness, about what it is, have have been around as long as the disease itself. It's a nature nurture debate, and then at times the prevailing ideas have been really destructive. Like as you said, blaming mothers, bad mothering. There was a term called the schizophrenogenic mother, and then the stigma, of course, has been brutal because if, like Mimi Galvin, you wanted to fight. The notion that it was her fault that that her children uh, had mental illness. You also had to fight uh, the stigma. You also had to be able to stand up and say, "My children have mental illness," which you weren't going to do in 1968 or in 1974 right. or in 1982. Um, and I think one of the more exciting things about writing a book like this is that I could sort of join in the battle against the stigma, and and hopefully the people who read this who do have acute mental illness in their life or in their families can be inspired and think that perhaps they're not alone and perhaps appreciate just how the stigma has diminished slightly since then and might continue to diminish in the future. Yeah. And I think, you know, the book uh, for me definitely had a big, a big part in that. I mean, do you think we've, if, if this family, if the Galvin kids, instead of, uh, you know, growing up in the, in the sixties and and into the seventies, like if, if Mimi was raising them now, um, how different do you think the situation would be? I mean, because Mimi, 
my my experience of her in the book was very much that she um, you know she wanted to keep up appearances uh, as much as she could that this was a a really um, functioning wonderful family which in some ways it had been before these kids got sick um, but but I wonder if keeping that trying to keep that together um, in some ways also didn't didn't serve uh, some of the kids obviously and and some of the treatment that maybe could have happened would it would it have been different now um, I do think it would have been different because there's a an emphasis on early intervention now that kind of neutralizes the stigma in a lot of cases, if you're lucky enough to have good, good health care and have access to that kind of health care. The example I always turn to is Donald, uh, who I talked about a minute ago. You know, his first signs that something was not quite right with him were at age 15 or 16. But his first trip to a psychiatric facility happened when he was 25. And in between, he had you know, an incalculable number of psychotic episodes. And, and imagine what would have been different for him if doctors and, and therapists and others had been able to reach him 10 years earlier and prevent those psychotic breaks. With each new right. psychotic break, there can be damage to your brain. So, so early intervention is really the thing that's different between now and then. Um, yeah. Mimi, yeah. as a mother, was, was excited about the book because, before she died and then she died a few years ago in the middle of reporting the book, but she was excited about the book because she thought it was proof that it was genetic, you know, that there was proof out there that the disease was genetic and that it, it left her off the hook. Um, the book is more complex than that. It talks about the children growing up, judging their mother and resisting their mother and, and feeling as if their mother was, was too invested in appearances to really own up to the situation. But then growing up and seeing that really, if it weren't for their mother, the family would have been cast to the winds. The big question I had about this family, independent of, of any scientific question, was how did they stay a family? I mean, if all these big, horrible things happened to most families, they wouldn't be a family for much longer. So what kept them together? What makes someone like Margaret or Lindsay decide after they leave town and go to college to actually come back and actually reintegrate with their family to some extent? Um, why didn't they just leave and never come back? And And those were the questions I thought perhaps might be more relatable for all readers who have something uh, cataclysmic happen to them, which is basically all of us. I mean, it's the, it's the dealing with tragedy and then moving through that tragedy and, and coming out of it that fascinates me. Yeah. I wonder how it's been for Margaret and Lindsay, um, who in some ways, uh, what, they, what they hoped for I, I imagine this has succeeded a book that that um, was really empathetically told and has done really well. Um, you know, I, I wonder what the feedback has been like for them, and also how it's echoed within the family and all those complexities. You asked some questions early on about about how the family was reacting to one another, and also thinking about the book as it was going on. I think their their most frightened moment came in a couple months before the book was published, where it suddenly became very real to them. And they said, hey, wait a minute, you mean it's going to be a, in People magazine, you know, and and what are you what are you talking about? Really? Like this is a real book. And then they were they they were very, very worried. And then when the early word came out that the book was being seen as something sensitive and empathetic and, and sympathetic and not exploitative, not voyeuristic, not sensationalistic, then they they calmed down a little bit. Um, Margaret is an artist and has used her art to process her life's issues creatively and, and, and in a way that I find personally very inspiring. And her art's really good, too. And she was hoping, to answer your question, she was hoping this book would be a um, sort of demonstration to others of how you can um, find creative ways to move through trauma. She's tried all sorts of unconventional therapies to, to sort of find ways to process her trauma. And she wanted to be an inspiration to others. And in that sense, the book's been a big success for her. She's had a lot of people come to her and she's been helpful to others, which is what she wanted to be. Um, Lindsay is the primary caregiver for her sick brothers and really wants, has become an activist on, on uh, you know, bringing awareness of mental illness and on the difficulties that the healthcare establishment and law enforcement has in dealing with people with acute mental illness and not perceiving them to be a threat, destigmatizing them. She has become only more active since the book came out and is really energized by that and is excited that hopefully with the, the book can help her connect with more people that way. 
Wow. Yeah, that's great. I, I, I also wonder, and, and Lindsay maybe is kind of the salient example of this, um, although I'm curious about what it was like for you to maintain empathy. Uh, and, and for Lindsay, maybe it's more forgiveness, maybe is more the word or, or just, um, you know, her ability to come to terms with uh, the, the dual truths that um, during your reporting, you were dealing with uh, people who had done in some cases, some um, some awful and horrific things, right? Whether whether it was sexual assault, uh, murder, um, but also people who were sick and and um, who were hurting and who were in pain. Uh, and and you know, I wonder for you if you ever had moments in the reporting where your own empathy was challenged, um, and and where you felt tired of it, or or um, where where reading about it even was challenging, or talking about it was challenging. Um, and if so. What helped you reinstill your own empathy? Uh, because I think that that's that's kind of a core challenge for all of us, right? Um, in, in terms of dealing with with people in our lives, is trying to find ways um, to continue to see them as human, which I feel like this book did. So I, I wonder how you managed to do that in your own reporting. I had a an earlier go round with those issues with my first book, Lost Girls, which is about you know, five women connected to the same serial killer case. And these women were all escorts and are now dead. And there, I really was writing about five families. And in those families, there were all sorts of conflicts and, um, and difficulties in, in processing the loss, but also in their lives entirely. And so I found myself sort of being tempted to referee a lot of different disputes. And I, and I realized that over time that while I'm not I'm not an advocacy journalist. I, I wasn't there to take up arms on their behalf. And, and with Hidden Valley Road, I wasn't there as an advocacy journalist either. I, I, I would have written it in a very different way, a more passionate way to, to sort of pick up the mantle for them. But I don't think that that's useful because then it becomes kind of a rah-rah cheerleadery book. But I, I also am not prosecutorial. Like I'm not out to decide who's right or who's wrong or to weigh in. And there might have been a couple of moments in Lost Girls, my earlier book, where, where I did have to weigh in and say, well, you know, this person says that and that person says this. And really, when you think about it, uh, what, what, what this person says really makes no sense. It just couldn't possibly be true. And then I kind of move on. But my general goal is to supply everyone's rationale, to understand that with very, very few exceptions, everyone has a rationale for what they do. There's always someone like Jim Galvin, who's deceased, who was the brother who who really was a, a serial sexual predator of, of, of his younger siblings. And you know, because he was deceased, I had very little ability to get inside his head and understand him. Instead, I decided sure. to focus on the ripple effects of his abuse and see how people dealt with it and what they thought about it and what their, how their thoughts and feelings changed and how they moved past it. Um, yeah, to me, it's about, it's about representing everyone and getting everyone across so that it feels like you're really getting the real story about the family. Yeah. Journalism is an act of understanding, which I, I love and appreciate and, and thank you for. Thank you, Eli. In this second half of our show, we're featuring Dr. Michelle Harper, who is the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, The Beauty and Breaking, about her experiences as a female African-American emergency room physician and her own journey to self-healing. Dr. Harper is in conversation with author Ruth Dickey, who has just this month been appointed the director of the National Book Foundation. Here's Ruth Dickey. Thank you, Michelle, for being here and for this gorgeous book in the world. Um, and I wondered if you'd be willing to start us off with reading a bit from the book. Here, I'll start with the introduction, just since it doesn't require context. It's always nice to start there. As I cradled my patient's head in my hands, I looked past the watery wells of his eyes. For a moment, I didn't notice the blood that ran in rivulets across my gloves as it poured from his scalp, or the bits of gray and white brain matter that dotted the sheets, the beeping of the monitors around me, the popping sound of IV catheter tops being flipped off by nurses, the screeching of wheels as equipment was dragged across the linoleum floors, the nurses in tech yelling directions at one another, the stifled gasps erupting from the two medical students on their first ER shift, attempting in vain not to be startled. All were drowned out as I stood over this young man and tried to ease his agitation. This is the part of being a doctor that medical school doesn't cover, that case reviews don't prepare you for. This is the part you can't really know until you're in the moment. You are the person responsible for saving the human life that slowly slips through your fingers while silently begging for final redemption 
under the demanding fluorescent lights. I am the doctor whose palms bolster the head of the 20-year-old man with a gunshot wound to his brain. I support the baby as she takes her first breath outside her mother's womb. I hug the wife whose husband is dying from advanced liver disease as she implores the universe to take away his pain. I claim no special powers, nor do I know how to handle death any better than you. What I know is that for 36 hours a week, I reside in the melee that is a hospital emergency room where I'm called upon to be salve, antidote, and sometimes charon. Most of the time, my job is to keep death at bay. When I am successful, I send the patient back out into the world. When I'm not, I am there as life passes away. I'm not so deluded as to think that I alone am capable of making that kind of difference. I'm well aware that the determination of who lives and who dies doesn't happen at my hands alone. There are times when Despite the designs of any patient, family member, friend, or doctor, death will come. Then I am witness. What I can do is be the fairy woman who holds the body as the last breath escapes. The one who, like the night sentinel, calls out the hour and does her best to convey that all is well. Like everyone, I am in this world for only a brief time. And as for many, blessings abound in my life and they abound amid the struggle amid my struggle. Over the decades, I've learned to cultivate a personal state of stillness. As a child, that stillness grew from a dissociation I stumbled upon that allowed me to better endure life with a father who was a batterer and with a family legacy of victimhood. As a black woman, I navigate an American landscape that claims to be post-racial when every waking moment reveals the contrary an American landscape that requires all women to pound tenaciously against the proverbial glass ceiling, which we've since discovered is made of palladium, the kind of glass that would sooner bow than shatter. When I began writing this book, I'd started over. My marriage to my college sweetheart had ended. I had moved to a new city to start a new job. Plagued with doubt, I found myself having to reevaluate my life. Living through such changes was difficult. Now I see these junctures when everything I had counted on came to an abrupt end as a privilege. They gave me the opportunity to be uncertain, and in that uncertainty grew opportunity. From childhood to now, I've been broken many times. I suspect most people have. In practicing the Japanese art of kintsukuri, one repairs broken pottery by filling in the cracks with gold, silver, or platinum. The choice to highlight the breaks with precious metal not only acknowledges them, but also pays tribute to the vessel that has been torn apart by the mutability of life. The previously broken object is considered more beautiful for its imperfections. In life too, even greater brilliance can be found after the mending. As an emergency medicine physician, I know how to be still for others. I know how to call down the gods of repose and silence to take measure of their power in the moments when I need it most. The stillness I inhabit as I pause, push, breathe, and grow. The stories I tell here will, I hope, take you into the chaos of emergency medicine and show you where the center is. This center is where we find the sturdy roots of insights that can't be wind-thrown by passing storms. In their grounding, they offer nourishment that can, should we allow it, lead to lives of ever-increasing growth. I had to find the center for myself as I took stock of experiences that were exceedingly painful, yet that ultimately filled me with the promise of a meaningful rebirth, a rebirth that is worth the surviving, worth the healing, worth the repair. Thank you so much. This is such a gorgeous and vulnerable book. And I'd love to begin with hearing, how did you decide to write this story? I, I will just say briefly as I, as I read that, a uh, couple days after election when we're all waiting mm. for results. It takes on new significance to me. And when I wrote it, you know, I, I examined some of my own healing processes, and, and this will lead into your question directly. Mm. I examined um, what I needed to do to, to heal myself growing up in a violent household. And I talk about my patients' processes of healing as well in their own lives. And in doing so, I touch upon 
themes of structural racism, misogyny, like violence against women, that were also critical at that time. I mean, it took me years to write this book. I didn't know it would come out at this particular cultural historical moment and still so relevant now. And I am fulfilled, rejuvenated by having these critical discussions because there's so much work we need to do. And that's why I wrote the book. That's why I decided to do it. You know, as an ER physician, I can I can help hopefully one person at a time, maybe one family, one community. But through amplifying these stories, it serves my goal of being a healer, which I identify with more than any other specific title. You know, doctor, that's fine. Healer's more important. And we can do that no matter what field we're in, whether we're a writer, an artist. There's, there's so much healing that can be done through those modalities. And that's why I wrote the book, to be part of a larger discussion beyond state lines of where I am or even internationally. I was curious because you tell patient stories throughout the book. And I'd love to hear which of those stories was the hardest for you to write and which was the easiest. The hardest and the easiest. Oof. I will say, oh, oh, okay. So one of the hardest, um, I speak about a man who comes in who the first thing I see that flashes on the screen is that there, there's a violent patient alert and in certain hospitals, and this was at the veterans hospital, when a patient has been violent or prone to violence, an alert comes on the screen just so that we're aware so we can take certain precautions. And the alert showed that he had assaulted a female doctor while she was doing a procedure on him. And that was very difficult for me for a lot of reasons. First of all, the way the note was written, it was pretty casual. Like it was disturbing to me that it was written in this just kind of commonplace, you know, things happen, manner. Um, I had hoped that he was held accountable, the patient for his actions. I hoped the institution supported her and took appropriate actions. Of course, I, I don't know if they did it or not. That really angered me. I talk about how during that time, it was kind of quiet in the emergency department. Um, it said he was coming in for a minor, a minor medical issue. So I went and I made my coffee <laughs> and I made it, it was, it was ready. I poured in the sugar like grain by grain, poured in the creamer because I figured I had time to get coffee, get a couple minutes. Uh, I got back though. I, I didn't maybe four minutes or so. Um, because I thought while it was quiet, while it was fine for him to wait, the nursing note said he was, there was no emergency going on. Other patients might show up and they shouldn't have to wait. Well, when I saw him, the situation was clear to me that the notes, the initial nursing notes were not correct. And he was surgical emergency and he needed immediate care for his life threatening illness. So I took care of him and I called the next provider, the surgeon who would need to take care of him. And her shift was almost over. So the person to take him to the operating room was another woman. And in writing about this, it was important for me to explore how I had a righteous anger towards his behavior. It also had no place in the care in that moment. It just didn't. He wasn't, he wasn't aggressive or violent when he presented. It had nothing to do with why he was there. He was a human being needing care. He received that care, good care, from three different women. And I thought to myself, if we were going, any of us, me, him, all of us, going to heal and evolve in that moment, I would have to look at my own judgment and where they're appropriately placed and at what time. And possibly, I don't know, was it lost upon him or not that the people to literally save his life, all three of them were women. This was all of our chance. So that's why it was, it was difficult. It's, I, I don't shy away from writing about instances where we can all grow because I'm human too and so I'm sharing these examples of my, my personal growth as well. So that was the hardest. 
I don't think any of them were particularly easy though, because they're difficult stories. I don't, you know, the cases are from different hospitals, but I guess my most difficult and one that is particularly close to me, both happen to be from the veterans hospital. And this was a woman, um, a young black woman who was coming, coming in to get sober, coming in for a medical evaluation to just for a doctor to clear her for a medical doctor to say she's fine to go on to her next job, her next sober house, to work with her next therapist. It was easy. And my shift was, I was running late. And the only reason I was there was because the night doctor who was coming on was going to be alone and it felt terribly unfair for him to have to take care of all the patients in the emergency department, all the new patients coming in. So I just said one more patient to do this for him and the patients to help expedite care. I did my evaluation, I could have left. But there was something in me that said to ask her because she had mentioned she was healing from a trauma in the military. And as I was leaving the room, something said, no, just ask ask her. She may not want to talk about it, but I felt that if I left, I would be complicit in the silencing of her. So I did ask and she did want to talk about it and proceeded to tell me how she was getting sober because she was raped in the military by fellow soldiers Mm -hmm. and how after they had committed this crime against her body while she was stationed overseas and had no support systems at all, then they tried to ruin her career so that she would lose her job and lose her benefits. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen. She was reassigned her next squad, got her to a therapist to help her, cleaned her record so that she didn't have these false allegations against her. We talked about the fact that she deserved to heal, that what they did to her was wrong. And she expressed at the end of her conversation that she was grateful for it because she hadn't told the full story to anyone before. And that was freeing for her. And that it was an important part in her moving towards healing and forgiveness, not of what they did, of course not, but the part of their humanity that was so broken that would cause that. And the purpose of the forgiveness would be that she, she could get on with her life. So that was, that was a story. It was hard to write about because it, it's so painful, but critical for me to do so. Um, and, and one that is, is closest to me for that reason. That was one of my favorite stories in the book. And the story of Vicki Honor reminds me of one of the things that threaded through the book was intuition and the powerful role that intuition has played and from the a message you got as a child to um, the when you were with the two-year-old and had a feeling and what it was that caused you to turn around and ask her that question. I wonder if you could talk about the role that intuition played in your life and in the memoir. Yeah. <sighs> Well, I've always been of the opinion that we're, we're more than just flesh and bone and that mm-hmm. humans, so much of how we, I mean, this part isn't rocket science, but so much of how we communicate is nonverbal, it's immaterial. And that if we listen to that, that sense we get, we can be, we can be led in ways that are really important. Um, you know, one of my earliest experiences of that was when I was a young girl, seven years old. And it was it was hard being in that house. There, there wasn't support um, with, as I mentioned in the intro that I read, living with a father who was a batterer and not knowing at any point in time if, if some violence would erupt, if it would, be life-threatening you, you know this actually as i speak about this i always say that i feel like in many ways i was groomed to be an er doctor because all i had was a snapshot in time was this incident that was happening this violence was it going to be immediately life-threatening would it likely blow over or will nothing really happen now so we can wait it out and we'll be okay but growing up like that one of the things i always wanted The one thing, the most important thing I wanted as a child was to feel safe, to feel safe and to feel that I would survive and that the people that I loved, my mother, 
my brother, my sister would survive. That's what I wanted to know for sure, but I didn't. But then one day when I was seven years old and sitting alone and it was quiet in the house, it usually wasn't quiet. Um, everyone was out except my mother who was upstairs. And I received a message and I, I heard, I felt a presence in the room, but I didn't see anyone and no one was in the room with me. It was just me and my little ponies. And the, the voice said, you will survive and your family will survive. And not, not only that, you have to survive because you will go on to help many people. And I didn't, at seven years old, I didn't really know what that meant, but I know that this voice said I would survive. And I was elated and I ran upstairs and told my mother what I heard. And that stayed with me um, and got me through childhood, adolescence. I mean, I, clearly I remember it even to this day. So that's just one example of how I feel that, I, I don't know exactly what that was. If you're spiritual, I guess you could say it's an angel or you could say it's an inner knowing, an inner voice. I'm not sure I would have that insight at seven years old, but <laughs> but I feel like if, if we're open, we do receive information from, from whatever spiritual guides or, or each other that can guide us. Uh, definitely that voice uh, was right since you're touching yeah. many lives, not only through your work, but also through this beautiful book. You write about so much violence that you are present to in the hospitals and the systems and the bureaucracy. And I would love to know, how do you be present to all that and still nourish yourself? What nourishes you through that? Yes, which is also relevant to right now mm -hmm. in this country. Yes. Um, and, and that's why, because it's relevant to right now, I do want to acknowledge that it is very important for me to always, I have like a couple um, principles I stand by. One is being radically honest. So I will always say part of my self-care is to not go into this denial world. Like I'm, I'm not part of the cohort who says, well, if you just kind of smile and focus on puppies, everything's fine. And like, you know, eat granola in the corner. No, that's not that's not real life. And I don't think that's productive. I mean, sure, sometimes we have to go and shut down. But I do feel that part of being healthy is being radically honest about what I'm feeling, what the situation is, and what I'm feeling. And then to act. So yeah, sure. Part of that is um, self care. I mean, I personally, I, I talk about this a lot in my book, I I still rely on the physical practice of yoga. For me, it's it's a practice that will always be a part of my life. Um, so I do that regularly, uh, meditation, whether it's walking meditation or just sitting um, to meditate. And then listening to, to people who are much wiser than me. So spiritual teachers. So that's helpful to me. But what also what also is helpful to me is serving my life purpose, um, doing the work to be part of the support structure for people in their own healing, whether it's in the ER or through my writing, doing work that is anti-racist, doing work to for equality on, on all fronts, again, whether it's violence against women or equality for women in, in all forms, pay equity. Uh, so that for me is replenishing and restorative. And that is definitely part of my, it's funny, like my self-care, but the whole reason I'm here and it is a restorative practice. You published, speaking of writing, you published a really powerful essay in Medium about the effects of COVID on healthcare. And I, I'd love to hear you talk about how do you think the pandemic is changing healthcare? You know, this one is tough because actually I'm, I'm seeing how it's revealing um, the nature of healthcare in this country. I'm not yet seeing change. I am hopeful for change. Mm -hmm. But what it is revealing is that our system doesn't work. 
and it wasn't set up to work. I mean, it's, uh, it's horrendous that we have a system where mainly health coverage is employee-based. So during a pandemic and record unemployment, people now don't have health care at record numbers. They can't access care, certainly not in a way that's affordable, that won't later bankrupt them. We're seeing a system where the healthcare providers don't have adequate protective equipment still, where the healthcare providers are having their hours cut, their pay cut, they're working short. They're already under stress because of the first wave of pandemic or current wave, depending where you live, and another wave starting where we are. So facing the, the emotional, physical duress of that and then the instability of the healthcare system, and then treating so many patients who are desperate and suffering and don't need to be because we have enough, we have the resources in this nation to take care of the people who live there if that was our priority. So it's revealed all of that in a way that I think now is undeniable. So I am hopeful that during this time, these are some of the changes that we'll address so that we do actually take care of people so that we decide that healthcare and health in this country is a right and not a privilege, and then we take the appropriate action. That's all for this week's episode of The Archive Project, featuring events from the 2020 Portland Book Festival. The 2021 Portland Book Festival lineup has just been announced. The festival will take place from November 8th to the 13th, online, on the radio, and in person. For more information about the author lineup and schedule, visit literary-arts.org. Join us next time for The Archive Project, a literary arts production in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from The Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support for The Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn, on a mission to fuel your big ideas. More at colehahn.com. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori for Radio and Podcast with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Joe T. Roy and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.